Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, from the uh, war zone where Donald Trump has declared war on Portland and on the American citizens, it's pretty breathtaking. We will be getting to that as we continue through the program. George W. Bush got away with torture and Trump was telling Fox News over the weekend that now the Supreme Court has told him how he can too and other things as well. We'll get into that. What are Trump's secret police up to? People in the White House are trying to keep Trump happy while people are dying. We'll get into that. In fact, I want to dig into this in just a moment. But I wanted to just start by honoring John Lewis, a man who, who was willing on multiple occasions. He was one of the original Freedom Riders, the original 13 Freedom Riders, on multiple occasions to give his life for this country and for the idea of a pluralistic, of an egalitarian, of an American society that works for all people, regardless of their race. And beyond that, regardless of their religion, regardless of their gender, you know, fill in the blanks. John Lewis was there. He was a genuinely, extraordinarily good and brave man. And John Lewis represented Georgia's 5th District for, you know, all the years he was in Congress. And by coincidence, I suppose, over the weekend, you know, I'm working on this, uh, uh, the next book in the Hidden History series. I just finished the one on oligarchy and tyranny. The one coming out next month is on monopolies. And so the one I'm working on for next fall is going to be about healthcare. And, and one of the main premises of the book is that most of the opposition to healthcare throughout the last hundred years anyway, in particular, uh, since we've really been talking about a national health care system, has come from white Southern conservatives who don't want black people to get health care. They don't want black people to get any kind of benefits at all, any kind of federal benefits at all. You know, I spent hours in the New York Times time machine, their archives back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, you know, looking for articles about this debate about Harry Truman's proposal for a single-payer health care system. And coincidentally, one of the things I came across was a New York Times article that was published on February 11, 1949. And the headline of this, the, keep in mind, this is 1949. The headline of this is Vote Test Backed by Georgia Senate. Now, John Lewis was nine years old when this happened. This is Dateline, Atlanta, Georgia, February 10. The Georgia Senate today passed a voters registration and qualification measure, 29 to 17, 
after opponents of the bill charged during debate that, quote, the sole purpose of the bill is to purge as many Negro voters as possible, end quote. It's the lead paragraph of the New York Times. Uh, They go on, it provides principally for elimination of present registration lists of 1.2 million uh, registered Georgia voters and and requires new registration applicants to meet certain educational and intelligence standards. Applicants correctly answering 10 of the 30 Senate-approved questions would be qualified to vote. And then it goes on to note, Governor Herman Talbidge, he was the governor of Georgia in 1949, was elected last year on a, quote, white supremacy platform, end quote, and he asked the legislature to adopt some sort of voter measure, quote, that will stand the test of the courts, end quote. And then a Senator Walter Harrison, this is in the Georgia Senate, stood up to speak against Talmadge and against this effort uh, to throw 1.2 million Georgia voters off the voting rolls. He spoke up and he said, with one fell swoop of the governor's pen, we will disenfranchise 1.2 million people who are now on the voters list. We will have to tell 1.2 million people that we disenfranchised them, that the Constitution means nothing. We white folks have always predominated at the polls, but I tell you that there will be a great upsurge among the colored people seeking to vote if this bill is passed. The colored people are citizens of the United States and they have certain rights. This constitu- the Constitution allows them to vote. Well, I think Talmadge got his way. So anyhow, I shared that with Greg Pallas. My, you know, he's a friend and, and we've both written books on voting. And he sends me back a note with the New York Times article from... Uh, the 18th, from day before yesterday, the headline, a more liberal Supreme Court now when it comes to voting rights. And Greg's note says, uh, that's interesting. Back in 1949, the New York Times was willing to openly talk about race. Now not. And this entire article does not mention the word race. And it's all about how the Supreme Court is going along with Florida disenfranchising voters. And (laughs) five pages in the article, they never get into race. And meanwhile, What do we have? We have now the governor of Georgia, the guy who is sitting in Herman Talmadge's seat, Governor Brian Kemp, saying to Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, she being black, Brian Kemp being white, the white governor, not only telling her that she can't mandate mask wearing in Atlanta, but going beyond that, And filing, well, she said he filed a 124-plus page lawsuit against me this week calling for an emergency injunction to stop me from speaking about his orders. Think about that for a minute. The governor of the state is saying to this mayor, shut the hell up. You don't have any right to speak. I mean, it's, it's like, how far have we gone? In some ways, I would say not very far. And to that, uh, you know, I want to get into this other piece about this. You know, Bush getting away with torture. Trump thinks that now he can get away with the secret police. Axios is reporting that Donald Trump was inspired to create his secret police force, which he is now deploying to Portland, because George W. Bush issued an executive order authorizing the military and the CIA to torture and kill innocent people, and he got away with it. This was on Fox News. He was talking to Chris Wallace, and he says, you know that Supreme Court DACA decision, that told me how I can get things done. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. but Because what the court said in Trump's uh, DACA decision was Barack Obama created DACA with an executive order. 
You can undo it with an executive order. You just did your executive order wrong. Here's the wording you have to have. And so Trump said on Fox over the weekend, he's going to have the new executive order that will undo DACA coming out this week. Meanwhile, he's also used executive orders to create a national secret police force fashioned after Germany's SS to train civilians in the use of weapons and how to perform citizens' arrests, you know, fashioned after Germany's brown shirts. Both programs are now fully implemented. We still don't know who these guys are in the streets of Portland who are, who are beating people up and snatching them, but never charging them with a crime. Is it because they're graduates of this new academy that ICE has started to train civilians in how to use weapons and do civilian arrests? I mean, these are basically crimes against democracy. Trump has also issued executive orders to end virtually all environmental regulations and protections and many of our banking regulations to give billions of dollars to his buddies and his cronies to create a broader infrastructure of fascism inside the U.S. government that could take a generation to dismantle. I mean, you think back, how did this all get started? I'm going to pick up on this rant after the break, but basically it all started with Jerry Ford pardoning Nixon and then Jimmy Carter, the Democratic president, coming in and saying, you know, we're not going to go back and look at those crimes. We're going to move forward. Right. How's that working out? We'll do a deep dive into that stuff in just a minute. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman program. Talk media for the sane among us. Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. George in Santee, California. Hey, George, what's up? Hey, good morning, Tom. Hey, I would like to give my voice in support of Black Lives Matter, the way that they have brought people together and the way it's gone globally. You know, I think that it might take some time to get some people to realize that black lives do matter, but something that should already be done. Where is Harriet Tubman's picture on the $20 bill? That should be here right now. Did you explain yeah, why that is? Yeah, it was supposed to be uh, sometime in 2017. It was supposed to the, the transition was supposed to be made, but Trump put, uh, put a hold see, on it. I want people to see what the face of a real American hero looks like. Yep, I am with you. I am absolutely with right. you. And Andrew Jackson, I mean, beyond just being a slave owner and a racist, he also participated in the ongoing slaughter of Native Americans as well as African Americans. I mean, it was just, he's like probably one of the most despicable presidents in our history. And that's the guy that Trump is hanging his picture next to the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. And that's the guy on our $20 bill who was supposed to be replaced by Harriet Tubman. And it's just insane. It's absolutely insane. Right. Well, thank you, Tom. Keep that conversation alive, will you? Yeah, I'll do my best. And you too, George. Thanks a lot for the call. Great to hear from you. Thank you. Tony in Boise, Idaho. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? 
Good morning, Tom. I have two points this I heard done. The first one is, I don't think Donald Trump's in it anymore. I mean, after this interview with Fox News, I mean, and it's been like that for a couple of weeks. We just really need to focus on the election and making sure that everybody's going to be able to vote, that there's not going to be any shenanigans done so that everybody can vote because Donald Trump's not in it anymore. I mean, he's, he's not, I mean, he hasn't made sense for a lot of us but, uh, for a long time, but Something else also from, I had an interview with Adam Schiff, and uh, I think it was with Favreau. There's going to be a lot of pressure so that we don't just move forward and just forget about all this Donald Trump, you know, all these laws being broken. There's going to be a lot of pressure. Joe Biden has to really focus and make sure that all of this, that there's legislature, so that this doesn't happen again. I mean, we can't just move forward like we did with Bush, and like like you said, when it started with Gerald Ford. We just can't move forward. We got to do, I mean, it's going to be hard, but we can't just forget about Donald Trump. We have to fix, and we have to try to do it so we, we, it doesn't happen again. I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, just changed everything and, and, and broke all the norms and all of that, and it can't, it can't be done. I mean, future presidents have to know that there has to be Tony, he's not that unique. George W. Bush broke the law left and right. He committed torture. He killed people. The difference is that George Bush directed his efforts at people who weren't American citizens. But Bush got away with breaking multiple laws and set the stage for Donald Trump to use those same tactics and those same techniques, the whole executive order thing, against Americans. I mean, this is our Pastor Niemöller moment, right? You know, we were opposed to the way that George Bush was, was torturing and murdering, you know, Muslim terror suspects, but I was not a Muslim terror suspect, so I did not speak out. I mean, that's where we're at. Tony, thank you for the call. I, you know, I get your sentiment, but right now, Republicans are purging people from the voting list in every state they have control of, right now, as we speak. So Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, is tweeting about how uh, it took eight days for a member of her family to get a COVID test back. And during that time, that person, who it turns out was positive, they didn't know for eight days, that person infected three other people in their family. Had they simply known, they could have quarantined that person. Uh, Even Mick Mulvaney, you know, right-wing crazy, former Tea Party congressman, you know, acolyte of the Koch brothers. Even Mick Mulvaney is saying this is unacceptable during a pandemic when his own kids couldn't get tested, or one of his kids. The other one got tested and took seven days to get the results back. He says this is unacceptable. We've got a whole video about why this is, where the ideology that's driving, this is beyond incompetence. This is actually ideological. A new video out about this, you can find it over at TomHartman.com. So let let me just make, be very, very clear about what's going on here with regard to George W. Bush and Donald Trump. And we're seeing it live right here in Portland. Uh, we had a Navy veteran, Christopher David, over the weekend who just went down and stood there with his hands in the air. And these federal guys came out and beat him with batons. He had a Navy. He's a, I mean, he's an eight-year Navy veteran. He, he, the photo of this has just totally gone viral. I retweeted it. If you want to see it, it's on my timeline. And... They broke two bones in his hands with their clubs. And what he was saying to them was, why don't you guys honor your oath to the Constitution? He took one when he joined the Navy. So how is it that this team, 
even exists. This private secret police force that have no badges, no insignia, no identification, that are literally, I mean, you know, the moms showed up over the weekend, right? The moms. This is from a piece on Daily Kos by Joan McCarter, which is, you know, particularly well done and tight. She says, the moms were back Sunday night in yellow shirts with arms linked to form a blockade. One Edie, who is soon to be a grandmother, told Willamette Week, the wall of moms were in white yesterday and they were tear gassed and shoved. So we came in yellow today and we're alongside the fence beside them, telling them, feds go home, the moms are here. The moms say, you're not going to hurt our kids. They were tear gassed again. And then I told you about, you know, Christopher Davis. And then uh, Davis tells the Washington Post, he says, it's just us normal people out here. There were a whole group of pregnant moms standing out there linking arms and they got tear gassed. You hear Trump saying it's just a bunch of wacko fringe people in liberal cities who are out there. But no way. We're all just normal people who think what's happening is wrong. So how did this happen? Well, it turns out that John Yu wrote an editor, John Yu, John Yu and Jay Bybee. Jane Bybee is now a federal judge. John Yu is now a law professor in California. The two of them wrote the memo, the torture memo, that George Bush used, George W. Bush used to issue an executive order authorizing torture by the CIA and our military, waterboarding and all that other stuff. Illegal. But he did it. And John Yu writes this should make it easy for presidents to violate the law. He says, quote, this is from John Yu, quote, this is what Trump read, by the way, and, and Trump has shared this with numerous people around the White House. This was a few weeks ago. He said, quote, suppose President Donald Trump decided to create a nationwide right to carry guns openly. He could declare that he would not enforce federal firearms law and that a new Trump permit would free any holder of state and local gun control restrictions. Even if Trump knew that his scheme lacked legal authority, he could get away with it for the length of his presidency. And moreover, even if courts declared the Trump permit illegal, his successor would have to keep enforcing the program for another year or two. Because it takes a year or two to undo a presidential executive order. And so then Trump says, you know, when he's talking to Chris Wallace, he says, uh, you know, the, the DACA decision of the Supreme Court, in which they basically said, you can't undo Obama's executive order except if you follow these particular rules. So he's going to do that. Well, now he's also issued all these other executive orders and, and doing all these other crazy things, you know, just basically destroying our democracy. Well, how did that happen? Jerry Ford pardoned Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter said, we're going to look forward, not backwards. So now we have Trump who figures out that he can, you know, figures he can get away with things. George H.W. Bush, on the advice of his attorney general, Bill Bark, pardoned Casper Weinberger, Ollie North and several others so that he and Reagan could get away with Iran-Contra. So now we have Trump, who figures he can get away with things. Bill Clinton chose to not look into Iran-Contra or any of the other crimes committed by the Reagan administration. And so now we have Trump, who figures he can get away with things. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney ignored the law and the Constitution and tortured and disappeared innocent civilians. And Barack Obama decided it wasn't worth investigating or prosecuting, or even passing legislation to prevent from happening again. And so now we have Donald Trump, who knows that he can get away with these things and even step them up and use open violence against United States citizens, peacefully protesting United States citizens. This is what happens when three generations of Democratic presidents ignore the crimes and illegal executive orders of the Republicans who preceded them. It's got to stop.
ICE offers Citizens Training Academy courses. U.S. Immigration and Customs Agency has has launched a six-week Citizens Academy course on immigration enforcement, training for citizens on how to arrest undocumented immigrants. Included in the course will be training in defensive tactics, firearm familiarization, and targeted arrests. These come out of a program called the Homeland Security Investigations, HSI. They graduated their first inaugural class of Citizens Academy students this last fall. This is a story from last year. This is a website. This is from the website, ICE.gov. Literally, it's a press, it's a press release. They say overall, HSI's St. Paul workforce represents about 1% of the agency's human capital, but it produces consistently high results. HSI's St. Paul obtained more than twice as many indictments and convictions than the national average. HSI St. Paul made more than 100 arrests for various drug-related offenses, including smuggling and distribution. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Shatter the Nations, ISIS and the War for the Caliphate by Mike Gillio. This is from the prologue. Dayline, Mosul, Iraq, February 2017. Abdul Wahab swore it was a true story. His eyes were reflected in the rearview mirror as he sped his pickup through battle-beaten country. To the left, the setting sun cast a Polaroid haze across brown fields and squat stone farmhouses. To the right was a ridge of mountains. Ahead was a flat road and a darkening sky. 
There was a soldier, a big soldier named Will. That's how Abdul Wahab put it. He pronounced the name Wool. Wool, Wool. He said it a couple more times, like he hadn't said it in a while. He slowed the truck to roll through the final checkpoint manned by the Kurdish militia, whose green and red flags snapped in a bitter wind. A soldier in a scarf manned a machine gun on the barricade that marked the boundary. From there, the road led 60 miles through territory controlled by the Iraqi military to the edge of Mosul and the last bastions of the ISIS caliphate. Will was one of the American special forces sent to Iraq more than a decade earlier to kill insurgents. The nights of the Iraq war had been filled with U.S. commando raids and the Americans had created Abdul Wahab's elite battalion to do the raids with them, an Iraqi version of the Delta Force or SEAL Team 6. The battalion had an English name, the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force, and was known by its initials, ICTF, which the men sewed onto their uniforms and painted on their Humvees. The Iraqis admired their American mentors. They picked up the Special Forces ethos, wore baseball caps and sunglasses, used words like the F-word and bro and dude. But Will was different, Abdul Wahab said. He would lose control. Abdul Wahab kept his foot on the gas pedal as he raced through a Christian town that seemed to be empty. ISIS had destroyed some of the houses, and the ones still standing were dark. Not a soul was visible except a trio of Iraqi soldiers who sat on a leather couch on the roadside. The photographer, Warzar Jaff, was in the passenger seat. I was in the back. Abdul Wahab's M16 was by my feet. An ICTF veteran in his 40s who had given up fighting, Abdul Wahab had been ferrying Jaff and me to and from Mosul for months. He was stocky and gruff, an expert at passing through the myriad checkpoints that led to the front lines, always knowing what to say or whom to call or when to gift his sunglasses to an admiring militiaman. He was an ideal wheelman for navigating the strange tapestry of the Alliance, with all its varied forces flying their banners around the city like armies in a medieval siege. His commanders used him for special transport of weapons and supplies, and officers who wanted to escape for a night to the hotels of Erbil, the Kurdish capital and nearest outpost of modernity, a place where they could find a decent dinner and booze, or visit a mall or swim in a pool and grasp at a moment of normalcy on the edge of the world's most brutal war zone. As grumpy as Sean, he was forever making the 45-mile journey between the two valley cities, and when Jaff and I had no other way to get to the war, we went with him. A folk song about an old battle was playing on the radio. You made your tribe proud of you, I can hear them scream. Abdul Wahab was still talking about Will. First he began shooting animals on patrol. Then on a raid one night, he shot an old man as he opened his front door. Abdul Wahab had seen it happen. The man's daughter was screaming, beating her chest in grief, and Will said something like, I just gave him an indigestion, he's sleeping, and threw a mattress onto the old man. He killed a teenager in front of his mother, jamming his gun into the boy's mouth. Abdul Wahab said he saw the boy's mangled head. He killed one man as Iraqi medics were treating him. He killed another while he lay in bed beside his wife. I asked what had happened to Will. Abdul Wahab said he didn't know. Will was transferred one day, and that was the last he'd seen of him, but he reckoned that a man like him must have met his judgment eventually. What he was telling me I knew was a ghost story. It reminded me of old reports of torture and orange jumpsuits and dead civilians and that what America asked of its soldiers could unhinge them. The war that defined my parents' generation in Vietnam had the draft and civil unrest with it. By the time the Iraq War started, when I was 18, America had a volunteer army, so people like me could carry on without worrying that our number would be called.
The country still found itself with a guilty conscience, though, and in this war with ISIS, the only U.S. soldiers on the front lines were the secret kind, small groups of commandos whose every mission was classified, while U.S. pilots and drone operators dropped bombs. It was left to local soldiers, like the men of Abdul Wahab's battalion, to do the bulk of the fighting. And as far as most Americans and their politicians were concerned, the war was out of sight and out of mind. In a way, it made sense. Fewer Americans lost their lives or their minds or committed war crimes. There were fewer stories like wills. Yet, in this new kind of U.S. war that culminated in Mosul, the deadliest urban battle in which America had engaged in at least half a century, the toll was still being paid by the local soldiers who were U.S. allies and by the civilians who were dying by the thousands in the crossfire. And I worried about the psyche of a country that still considered itself at war, but was more disengaged than ever from it, with no sense of shared sacrifice or even collective responsibility. On the one hand, America seemed obsessed with ISIS, roiling with every terror attack, while on the other, they made little effort to understand the enemy or the local soldiers doing most of the killing and dying to stop it. The book Shatter the Nations. Tom Harmon here with you. So reading from a press release over on the ICE.gov website, they're talking about the HSI, this is the Homeland Security Investigations Citizens Academy. They graduated their first group of students. These are citizens, civilians who are being trained in the techniques of the military and the police. Much like the brown shirts, they were volunteer civilians throughout the 20s, actually, and then into the 1930s. And then Hitler brought them in and trained them professionally. And eventually they became the brown shirts. They became the, the SA, Hitler shock troops, basically. So uh, this is from the ICE press release. Overall, HSI St. Paul workforce represents about 1% of the agency's human capital, but it can produces consistently high results based on those staffing levels. For example, in fiscal year 2019, HSI St. Paul obtained more than twice as many indictments and convictions than the national average. Also included in the academy program was a simulated narcotics enforcement investigation. FY 2019, HSI St. Paul made more than 100 arrests for various drug-related offenses, including smuggling and distribution. This apparently started in St. Paul, Minnesota. During the final phases of the Citizens Academy, the class engaged in shoot-no-shoot scenarios on a shooting range as the students experienced split-second life-and-death decisions firsthand. Are these the people? that we've got on the streets of Portland? We don't know. We don't know. But I think that there's a good chance. NBC News is reporting, by the way, the Supreme Court said that Congress can get Trump's tax returns. They've got to jump through a bunch of hoops. They've got to go through the lower courts. But, you know, eventually they'll get them. <laughs> Maybe not this year. But typically after the Supreme Court issues a decision, everybody has 25 days to basically digest it and stuff before they have to act on it. And the House of Representatives reached out to the Supreme Court and said, can you do away with that 25 days in this case so that we can immediately begin the process of petitioning the lower courts for Trump's tax returns? And the Supreme Court just said, no, you have to wait 25 days. You have to wait till August 3rd. Sorry. Meanwhile, another piece of this very disturbing interview that Trump did with Chris Wallace this weekend was where Trump was talking about Joe Biden and was talking about his intelligence test. It wasn't actually an intelligence test. It was a cognition test was the word. If you saw the interview, if you didn't, I'll just tell you. Donald Trump said basically words to the effect of 
If Joe Biden took that test, he would be laying on the ground begging his mother to come for him. And I remember hearing that at the time thinking, what a weird thing to say. And then it struck me, George Floyd. Donald Trump is using George Floyd, that imagery, that's stuck in his head, right? George Floyd, as he's dying, calling for his mother several times. And Trump apparently thinks that that's like a good image, somebody on the ground begging for their mother, so much so that he's applying it to Joe Biden. Oh, and now we discover, by the way, five days ago, Judge Esther Salas was given the Jeffrey Epstein case. There's a civil lawsuit that's looking into what Deutsche Bank did and when they did it. Deutsche Bank that has already pled guilty to and paid billions in fines for laundering money for mobsters out of Eastern Europe and Russia. Deutsche Bank has already paid fines for laundering money for mobsters. And she gets this case. And five days later, somebody shows up on her front doorstep, rings the bell. Her son and her husband open the door and he shoots them both. He kills her son. Her husband's in the hospital right now. Is there a relationship? We don't know. Her husband's also a criminal defense lawyer. She's also had other cases besides Epstein. Who knows? And uh, the final thing I wanted to share with you, which is very alarming, and this is, you know, keep an eye out. This is going to be in the news this week. If Mark Meadows, who is the, right now the president's chief of staff, you know, former coke acolyte, right-wing Tea Partier member of Congress, now he's inside the White House, Great piece in the New York Times over the weekend, by the way, about how Mark Meadows and Deborah Burks just totally screwed up the coronavirus thing, which is why we're in such a bad situation. Mark Meadows said on Sunday, it's time for people to go to jail. What's he talking about? Well, John Durham is a U.S. He's one of the federal prosecutors and, and Trump plucked him out of obscurity and said, I want you to investigate James Comey and Clapper and Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. I want you to investigate all these people who are investigating my campaign. Well, specifically, they're investigating Russian involvement in the Trump campaign, uh, something Trump never says. But uh, Mark Meadows was on Fox News. Sunday Morning Futures is the name of the show. Bill Barr had earlier on Fox said that uh, Durham's findings were, quote, very troubling, familiar names. Meadows told uh, Maria Bartiromo, I think the American people are expecting indictments. I expect indictments based on the evidence I've seen. He went on to say, and yes, I use the word spy on Trump campaign officials and actually even doing things when this president was sworn in. The FBI did not act appropriately. It's all starting to come unraveled. And I tell you that it's time that people go to jail and people are indicted. Now, Put that in the context of my earlier rant. Earlier, I pointed out, not holding Nixon accountable, bing, Trump. Not holding Reagan accountable, bing, Trump. Not holding George Herbert Walker Bush accountable, bing, Trump. Not holding George W. Bush and Dick Cheney accountable. Here we have Trump. Trump has learned the lesson of each one of those. But he's going to hold Obama accountable. He's going to, he's going to establish the precedent of holding prior presidents accountable. And I suppose the one little bit of good news about this is that if he does this, 
If he tries to bring down indictments against James Comey or, or uh, e- you know, even Barack Obama, if he tries to hold members of a previous administration accountable in ways that, you know, we've had four criminal Republican presidencies. Nixon, Reagan, Bush, and Bush. Four, every single one of them committed substantial crimes that are well documented. And in each case, the following Democratic president said, we're just going to ignore those crimes. And so each next Republican president committed even worse crimes. So I guess the good news is if Trump says, okay, we're going to go after crimes committed by a previous president, that means that if Biden becomes president, there's already an established precedent to look into the crimes of the guy that came in before you. Tom in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Hey, Tom, what's up? Yeah, well, first, I want to say that someone needs to leak the unredacted Mueller report right away. Okay. Yeah. Now, yeah, I'm with you. Okay. The main point is those guys who showed up on the streets of Portland, okay, they showed up in D.C. first, correct? Uh, we think so, yes. Yeah. So now they're in Portland and he's threatening to send them to Chicago and places like that. Do you think That's maybe right. these might be the guys who protect Trump if he refuses to leave the White House? Yes, absolutely. That's why, you know, when I was mentioning the SS and the SA, it was not just a random reference. The SA was originally the volunteers who policed the beer halls when Hitler would give speeches in the 20s. And they started all wearing brown shirts as kind of a uniform, the way that these guys are wearing Hawaiian shirts now. And then Hitler brought them in and gave them training and gave them authority. Hitler's personal guard was the SS. And the SS then became the Death's Head Squad, the Totenkopf. A squad and they just terrorized all of Germany and then that was the federal police and yeah I think that this is all one thing Tom I think what you're seeing is Trump creating a force around himself that he may well call on if he loses the election and says oh there was voter fraud I actually didn't lose and then there's going to be a big test of loyalty inside the federal government Tom thank you for the call this is the beginning of a coup This is the overturning of the norms of America. This is the destruction of a democratic republic right in front of our eyes. It's the True People's Media, the Tom Hartman program, back with more of your calls and the news of the day right after this. Peak libertarianism. I think that we are now, I mean, you know, it could get worse, but so far we are at peak libertarianism here in the United States. And this bizarre experiment that has been promoted by the billionaire class for over 40 years is literally killing us. Back in the years before Ronald Reagan, there was this real estate lobbying group. It was called the FEE, F-E-E. And they came up with the idea of creating a political party to justify deregulating the real estate and finance industries so that they could make more money. Party would give them ideological and political cover, and they developed an elaborate theology around all this. What came out of this, this political party that came out of this, this lobbying group, literally invented by a lobbying group, was called the Libertarian Party. And their principal argument was that if everyone acted separately and independently in all cases with maximum selfishness, that that would produce the very best outcome for society. 
This was advocated in various forms by Ayn Rand, by Milton Friedman, by Friedrich von Hayek, by von Mises, and others. And, uh, you know, try to provide a philosophical argument or framework to basically a justification for greed, selfishness, and the massive acquisition of wealth. In this uh, libertarian world, there'd be no government needed beyond an army and a police force and and a, a court system to defend the rights of property owners. In 1980, David Koch, the billionaire, actually ran for vice president on this newly formed Libertarian Party ticket. His platform was to privatize the post office, something that we will be talking about today. It looks like Trump is well on track to do that. Shut down all public schools, Betsy DeVos. Privatized Medicare and Medicaid, Sima Verma, and food stamps and all other forms of welfare, every Republican in Congress, deregulate all corporate oversight, we'll get to that in just a second, and sell off the federal government's land and other assets to billionaires and big corporations. This was David Koch's political platform in 1980 when he ran for vice president. And since then, libertarian billionaires and right-wing media have been working really, really hard to get Americans to agree with Ronald Reagan's statement that he made in his first inaugural address, where he said, in this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. Well, Trump is getting us there now. Every federal agency of any consequence is now run by a lobbyist or a former industry insider. The Labor Department, under Eugene Scalia, actively trying to destroy organized labor. The Interior Department, under an oil lobbyist, is selling off our public lands. The EPA, promoting deadly pesticides and allowing more and more pollution. The FCC is dancing to the tune of the giant telco companies and the internet service providers like uh, Comcast. The Education Department is actively working to shut down and privatize our public school systems. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is shutting down food inspections. Even the IRS and the Social Security agencies have been gutted. Tens of thousands of their employees laid off just in the last couple of years. So now very, very wealthy people are no longer having their tax returns audited. And the wait time for Social Security disability claims are now officially well over two years. The guy Trump put in charge of the post office, he's actively trying to destroy the post office. Um, slowing down mail. And the bonus for that, you know, slowing down mail is that the bonus for Trump on that is that it could throw a huge monkey wrench into any vote by mail efforts this November. Trump has pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accords. Fossil fuel lobbyists now control America's response to global warming. Our nation's response to the coronavirus has been turned over to private for-profit testing and drug companies. And the Trump administration refuses to implement any kind of official government policy, saying that it's all up to individual responsibility. The result is over 130,000 dead Americans and 3 million Americans who are currently infected and know it and are scared to death that they might die or they might kill other people and their families. You know, all these libertarian ideas and policies promoted by that lobbying group back in the 1960s have made CEOs and billionaire investors very, very rich. It's literally killing the rest of us. FDR put America back together after the Republican Great Depression. He built the greatest and wealthiest middle class literally in the history of the world at that time. And now 40 years of libertarian Reaganomics have gutted our middle class, made a handful of oligarchs wealthier than anybody in the history of the world. 
and brought an entire generation of hustlers and grifters into public office via the GOP. When America was coasting on FDR's success in rebuilding our government and our institutions, nobody really took these crackpots seriously. Now that they've had 40 years to make their project work, we're hitting peak libertarianism. It's tearing our country apart. It's pitting Americans against each other and literally killing thousands of people every day. If this country is going to survive as a functioning democratic republic, we have to repudiate this whole greed is good theology, the ideology of libertarianism. We have to get billionaires and their money out of politics, and we have to rebuild our civil institutions. And that starts with waking Americans up to the incredible damage that 40 years of libertarian Reaganism has done to this country. I got to tell you, by the way, I'm reading a book right now, a fellow by the last name of Bergman. He's Dutch. And the book is called Humankind. And it lays out clearly and specifically how He sets out to address this question. I raised this question in my book, Screwed, back in 2005. I thought it was in Threshold, too, but it turns out it's not. It must just be in Screwed. In fact, I've got to go find a copy of Screwed and pull it out. But back during the Enlightenment, basically, there were two schools, two philosophical schools. You had, on the one hand, you know, the first guy who wrote about this, Hobbes, who said, without a leviathan, a giant beast, he referred to it as the iron fist of church or state, without that leviathan, without that controlling force that human life would be terrible, that in prehistory life was nasty, short, and brutish. And then, you know, about, well, 33 years after Hobbes died, along came Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher and scientist, who said, no, no, it is civilization that has caused life to become nasty, brutish, and short. And back when we lived as hunter-gatherers, life was actually really, really good. And so the question And many of the founders and framers of this country and much of the idealism on which this country was founded were big fans of Rousseau. Although a lot of the conservatives among them, including people like John Adams, are big fans of Hobbes. And so he sets out to answer this question, who was right, Hobbes or Rousseau? I'm about a third of the way through the book. I recommend it really highly, Bergman's Humankind. But I guess our question here Uh, beyond anything else, is are we going to continue to let this libertarianism, this Hobbesian idea, continue to destroy our country and kill us? This is the Tom Hartman Program. There is math out there suggesting that as many as 9 million Americans could die from this coronavirus. Seriously. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You're listening to Tom Hartman. This whole idea of what is human nature is an absolutely fascinating idea. I mean, is the essence of human nature that we are good, that we are cooperative, that you know we're here for each other, or is the essence of human nature something quite different? Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff, what's up? 
Good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Hope you're doing well. I described these last 40 years of libertarianism as the age of ignorance and the rise of magical thinking, in mm. which the conservatives successfully conned enough people into thinking that the only things keeping them from becoming rich were the government and taxes, and we can't tax the rich because that might be me someday. And so today, Tom, in the middle of a deadly pandemic, the billionaire class has added $600 billion to their coffer since the beginning of the year, while 20 million people are on the verge of being evicted from their homes, adding to the already unconsciously high rate of homelessness we have in this country. So if we go back to 1934, Tom, in the middle of the Great Depression, there was a guy who came out with a plan that actually pushed FDR to the left. That was Huey Long, the ex-governor of Louisiana, who, as a U.S. senator in 34, introduced his Share Our Wealth plan. It proposed to cap personal fortunes at $50 million and use the resulting tax revenue to help guarantee housing for all. Tom, don't you think in, in a pandemic where access to sanitation and basic hygiene is key to controlling the spread, not only do we need to have health care for all, but we need housing for all? And yeah. why not pay for it by capping the personal fortunes at 5 or $10 billion and call it the patriotic billionaire's tax? Yeah, I would cap it at $1 billion. If you can't live on a $1 billion, uh, you've got a serious yeah. problem. In <laughs> fact, I used to have a website. I don't know if we still have them or not, nobillionaires.com and .org, you know, where I had rants about that, uh, you know, posted online. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Jeff. Jeff Bezos alone has raked in an extra $75 billion this year. I mean, it's obscene. And, you know, Huey's plan didn't succeed, but it did lead FDR to pass the Revenue Act of 1935, also known as the Wealth Tax of 1935, and it taxed 75% of income, any income over a million dollars. So, you know, if we can push Biden to the left, we might get some results. Yeah, I agree. And, and Huey Long got assassinated for his efforts, sadly. But uh, And also, I would look at FDR's second Bill of Rights. I mean, that came right out of Huey Long, too. Jeff, thank you. Hey, we have a special new video up over at TomHartman.com. And it's about how FDR in 1944, in fact, January of 1944, in his uh, State of the Union address, talked about how important it was to add rights to the Bill of Rights. The original Bill of Rights was all political rights. He said it's time to enshrine economic rights in our Constitution. I would add, like most of the governments of Europe have done, and this includes the right to housing, the right to food, the right to, to a good job that pays well, the right to an education, including a college education, and the right to health care. It's pretty powerful stuff. And frankly, I think that what this coronavirus crisis is proving is that we are all in this together, and that Reagan's thing about government is never going to help you was just a, a load of crap. And so you can check it out over at TomHartman.com. So a day or two or three ago, I was uh, reading Twitter, and there was this extraordinary guy down in Florida who was yelling at Ron DeSantis, the governor, you should resign. <laughs> Whoa, who is this? Who is that masked man? I mean, he wasn't masked. Well, you, you know, actually, I guess he was masked. But in, in any case, uh, he used to run the, uh, he was the legislative director for the uh, Miami-based Florida Immigrant Coalition. 
Then uh, he worked for Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign in Washington, D.C. back in 2016. And now Thomas Kennedy is the Florida State Coordinator for United We Dream, unitedwedream.org. And I have been you know, looking for somebody from Florida who's really wired into the local politics down there to find out what the hell is going on in that state. Thomas Kennedy, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Super excited. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thomas, and thanks for joining us. And first of all, yeah, I want to find out, you know, all about unitedwedream.org, but let's start with your confrontation with Ron DeSantis, the governor of your state. Tell us about that. So I found out about this conference, you know, just an hour before it was going to happen because they announced them very late because they want to avoid the public going and holding them accountable. And I decided to just go and, uh, you know, exercise my, my First Amendment right and, and let them know what I think, because I'm, I'm fed up with the situation here in Florida. You know, we're worse than we have ever been, you know, four months since the start of this pandemic, or at least when it bursted into the public consciousness. We are getting record or almost record cases every day. You know, dozens or hundreds of people are dying. 133 people died yesterday, 112 today. Small businesses are closing. People can't access their unemployment benefits. It's taking one, two, sometimes three weeks or more to get back. It's just a complete and total disaster what's happening. And the governor pretends like everything is fine. He manipulates data and he needs to be challenged and confronted and held accountable. Yeah. First of all, was there any consequence to you of yelling at your governor there in the public? Did you get arrested or anything Uh, like that or pushed out of the way? Or did somebody come up and breathe on you? I mean, what happened? Well, yeah, I mean, like the guy came to me. uh, He was some sort of staffer. I don't know what what his role was, but Mm. he like pushed me back all the way. And you can see in the video, he pushed me back. I I think I I tell him that, you know, social distance or something like that. But he pushed me back. I didn't really resist. I stepped back as he was pushing me. And then once I was outside, he threatened me with arrest. And what I told him was like, look, you all gave me a credential. I walked in here. I asked for a credential. You all gave it to me. I have a right to be here, you know, because he was like, this is private property. You're trespassing. And I was like, actually, I have a pass given by you guys. And, you know, I just told him I'm, I'm here as a person who's represented by this governor to tell him that I don't agree with what he's doing. And they just let me go. I just left because I didn't yeah. want to escalate the situation further. Yeah, yeah, I get it. We're talking with Thomas Kennedy, the Florida State Coordinator for United We Dream. Tell us about United We Dream. Yeah. So United We Dream is an amazing organization. We are the largest immigrant youth network in the country with over half a million members. We do advocacy on behalf of immigrant communities and progressive causes. And yeah, here in Florida, you know, we're doing a ton of work around issue of immigration detention centers that are completely held unaccountable in terms of anything they do. But obviously during this public health crisis, they're a petri dish for this virus. You know, the guards are coming in and out, spreading the disease. They're not giving protective equipment to the staff or the people in detention. And we're also doing work around, you know, trying to, to get more access to testing for immigrants who face all kinds of obstacles in terms of getting their results or even accessing the testing in and of itself. The Supreme Court ruled that the Trump administration has to go back to running the DACA program, you know, as it was envisioned. So far, they haven't done that. Are you guys working on that issue, too? And if so, or even if not, what do you know about it and where it's all going? What are you all hearing? Yeah, United We Dream was part of something called the Home is Here Coalition, which is 
various organizations that came together to fight back against the unjust effort to rescind DACA by the Trump administration. And yeah, you know, we won that case, which was huge, unexpected, frankly, and such good news for hundreds of thousands of immigrant youth who their lives were in the balance, right? And they were living with daily anxiety every day. Obviously, we cannot trust the Trump administration to do the right thing. They frankly are rogue. They don't respect the branches of government. They don't respect the judicial power. Other immigration agencies, and frankly now, USCIS, are rogue agencies. So we are going to continue, obviously, advocating, mobilizing, organizing, working with other organizations, litigating, whatever we need to do to make sure that not just immigrant youth, but our whole immigrant community, immigrants in this country are protected and that their rights and their humanity are upheld. ICE has started holding training sessions for civilians who want to become, I guess, you know, junior George Zimmermans, where you can learn how to use weapons and how to beat people up and how to arrest people and stuff. The Washington Post a couple of months ago, I think it was a column by Thomas Edsel, as I recall, but I could be wrong. But in any case, there was an extensive article about how Trump, because of the nature of ICE, it's, it's kind of a quasi-independent agency that was carved out of a DHS, but has a level of unaccountability that Trump has embraced this organization and basically turned them into his own Praetorian Guard, his own equivalent of the Schutzstaffel, the SS, you know, his kind of private police force. And now they're training civilians to go out and bust heads. I mean, you know, this is like scary stuff. And most recently here in Portland, we had a guy who was shot in the face and got a broken skull and broken face bones. He's still in the hospital, extensive surgery. We're not even sure that his brain is working, that he knows who he is or where he is. I mean, I haven't heard the most recent, but he was confused was the description I read in the paper on Sunday. And we had Senator Ron Wyden on about this, condemning this. But it turns out that the federal police that Trump sent to Portland, that Trump was bragging about, were largely these ICE guys. What are you guys seeing about this you know, quasi-independent federal police force. What the hell is going on here? Yeah, I mean, this is part of the Trump administration's white supremacist agenda led by people like Stephen Miller to continue this war, these attacks on immigrants, right? And we've seen this just constant escalation of tactics such as this. Here in Florida, for example, in 2018, after they passed a bill that enhanced cooperation between local law enforcement and federal immigration authorities statewide, you saw something called the Warrant Service Officer Program that basically trained and deputized police officers in local jails to serve ICE warrants. And this is another step to that, where now they've actually just bypassed law enforcement completely, and they're just training and giving authority to everyday people to just basically do vigilantism, right? And it's scary. And it's frankly fascist, right? And another reason as to why Trump is is a menace to this country, a menace to humanity, frankly, and needs to be repudiated. And and to democracy. We're talking with Thomas Kennedy, the Florida state coordinator for UnitedWeDream.org, who basically told Ron DeSantis to leave town. What is the state of politics in Florida? Do you think that DeSantis is going to go down? Do you think that the state could go blue? Um, I'm not sure, you know. He's not up for election until 2022. But what I can tell you is he used to be seen as sort of like a a moderate, you know, very popular governor with high approval ratings. That was, Mm -hmm. of course, not true. 
But this latest crisis has really dented his reputation, and people are very angry. So, you know, we'll see. Well, let's hope change is in the air. (laughs) Thomas Kennedy, uh, unitedwedream.org is the website. You can see his actions on my Twitter feed and on his as well. His Twitter handle is T-O-M-A-S-K-E-N-N. Thomas, thanks so much for dropping by. Great talking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Hi, it's the Tom Hartman Book Club with the Tom Hartman University, and today we're reading from Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. I'm reading from the preface. This is page XIII. The world right now is tottering atop three major thresholds. An environment that is so afire that it may soon no longer be able to support human life. An economic free market system that is almost entirely owned, run, and milked by a tiny fraction of 1% of us and has crashed and in many ways is burning around us. And an explosion of human flesh on the planet that has turned our species into a global petri dish just waiting for an effective agent to run amok. Four mistakes have brought us to this point and the failure to recognize them at their deepest level will only push us faster toward total tipping points where we are thrown over the three thresholds and into disaster. All four of these mistakes are grounded in our culture, our way of thinking, our way of seeing the world, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and why we're here. The first mistake is a belief that we're separate from nature. Our religions tell us that we were created by a supernatural being who is not part of this earth and not from this planet. He set us apart from all other life, and many among us, perhaps even the majority of the six billion of us, roughly seven billion now, don't even believe that we are animals, but instead think we're a totally unique life form. Civilizations have come and gone, and those long gone vanished mostly because they despoiled their commons, allowed small elites to control their economies and governments, and lived in ways that were unsustainable. Those who survive for centuries or millennia are the ones that learned how to protect their commons, engage in non-toxic commerce and governance, and organize their cultures and lifestyles in ways that could continue in the same place and the same way down through the ages. If we don't learn the lessons of the latter, we shall face the fate of the former. The book is Threshold, the progressive plan to pull America back from the brink. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.